The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so here's a sutta that has both a story and a frame. And one takeaway that we could keep, um, take from both of these aspects is that what really matters is your actions. That matters more than to whom were your parents or what is your livelihood or what your station is in society. Perhaps that's like one key takeaway. That's the connection between both uh, the frame and the, the story that we uh, studied earlier. I wonder if anybody else has some ideas. What do you think there's potentially some key takeaways from these? I'm not sure if this is a takeaway, but it's leading me to wonder in the reordering about Donna and what's and basically the requirement in the in the um, the spiritual hierarchy of where we wouldn't be by body, you know, it wouldn't be from the mouth, the arms, the legs, the feet, but as we are practitioners different things are required and demanded. And it, it wouldn't just be a direct translation from the social caste, but it's, it's a question I have. And I guess it's not really a takeaway, it's a question around generosity and how one then supports this uh, transformed society, given that there's still the old society that we live among and within. Yeah, I think that the, um, uh, I think what, what you're pointing to with dana, dana is considered one of the foundational ethical practices. And so as, the, as a person's ethics, behavior, uh, ethical behavior, which is the measure of both, um, you know, where you are spiritually, where you are, kind of your status in a sense, but also, uh, it's your behavior which has consequences. As one, someone said earlier, maybe it was Kim also said, uh, or, or no, it was uh, maybe Brigitte, anyway, a number of you might have said it, is that um, um, the focus here is on consequences. And so ethical behavior has consequences, and so you want to look at the, you, you want to uh, uh, do the kind of ethical behavior that has con- good consequences for you, and focuses more on the consequences than the idea of punishment. So uh, being generous has different consequences than being miserly. And from a Buddhist point of view, you're not necessarily like a, a bad person for being miserly, but you're creating bad consequences for yourself. And so dana is part of that. So this emphasis on the ethics, behavior, and consequences points the finger back on particular uh, ethical behaviors which are partic- are significant, and dana is considered one of the primary ones. Does this answer your question? So one of the things I took away from this is um, in the inception of the differentiation of beings, the sort of metaphor for the differentiation of castes even before the castes emerged, that um, 
they're kind of, they were all in it together. They were all experiencing greed. They were all experiencing aversion. That kind of behavior, that karma, um, it kind of levels the playing field a little bit and puts the emphasis even more on how behavior can then shift a person's destiny, if you will, and shift a person's karma. So it takes away a little bit of what I think of the competitive advantage of the Brahmins maybe having been in that society. Yeah, I think that's interesting also because it points to how it starts with an individual behaving in a particular way, being greedy or being lazy, but then all the other beings are as well. So you can see how the effects of one individual can perhaps end up affecting a larger society and, and untold consequences. It's interesting, too, that then the flip side of that is that virtuous behavior has that capacity as well. So That's it's right. beautiful. That's right. Thank you, Don. So people who are interested in environmental issues will use this sutta here as an example of how human behavior, uh, the consequences are not just personal, but also they're social and environmental. And, um, and people like to point out the fact that it's, it's pretty easy to see that these days, maybe easier than what maybe was like 2,500 years ago there social collective consequences on the environment and for our greed. I was thinking that maybe um, for me it would be useful to keep this discourse in mind when we get um, engaged with discussions about diversity and the interpretation of the caste of the Buddha to keep that as our as our goal to guide ourselves to get over the pain and remember that um, really what counts is our behavior and the consequences. Thank you. Thank you for stating that. Uh, what I what kind of comes to mind is uh, the sort of the task that the Buddha had. He had to address individuals, lay a platform of ethical behavior, but also he had to address society that he was in. So well, I'm totally amazed at how he was able to sort of set that in motion through his stories, through his teachings, and create a safety, a, a safe environment to teach his teaching. So be able to connect to each individual person so that that could spread. It could create a really beautiful framework, a container, so he could actually then go about and tell and address each person and say, you can be free. You can be free of this caste. You don't have to be stuck in this place. I mean, I can only imagine what it would feel like if you were there in that place, sort of to what Andrea's point is, where we're stuck in these, I'm this person and I can't ever change because the society has me here. And so the Buddha had to create this container where that wasn't true. You know, he had to recontextualize everything. And that's like what you're saying, his, his ability to re be that person, that changer, that game changer, you know, in really a quite amazing, you know, way. So, 
Maybe, oh, okay. Is, is there, are there more comments or are there, do you have? So, so I have another question about the text. Um, uh, I'm not familiar with it, so I'll, I, I have to, um, it, 22, uh, uh, not sure what that 22 represents, but um, he's speaking about the Brahmins and there was evil and um, uh, people were taking things that weren't theirs and so forth. And so the Brahmins came into being. Uh, uh, and then he goes on in 23 that some of the Brahmins weren't able to live uh, separately in the, uh, what's the word he used, in, in, um, in, in huts or tent, well, I'm not sure what word he uses. Um, and they, then they lived near the cities and wrote verses. <laughs> and I'm wondering who he's speaking about, but he also says that they were first a lower class, but then they became known as the Brahmins and were a higher class. And so he's pointing criticism here at somebody and something, but I don't get it. Yeah, it's possible this is more humor. It's also pointed humor. The, um, it's also still continue to play this game, you know. So, so the um, uh, uh, beginning of this, he says that... Um, um, so let me read it. Uh, then some of those beings thought, evil things have appeared among beings, such as taking what is not given, censoring, lying, punishment, and banishment. We ought to put aside evil and unwholesome things. And they did so. They put aside evil and unwholesome things is the meaning of Brahman. What you don't see here is a word play. The word for putting aside and the word for Brahman are, sound very similar. So he's saying the reason they're called Brahmins is because they have this activity of putting aside. They're putting aside evil things. So imagine, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of telling Brahm, those Brah, other Brahmins, this is your background. You're, you're supposed to be putting aside evil things by, by his definition. He's, um, and then he goes on to say, they made leaf huts in forest places and meditated in them. Now, who in the time of the Buddha do you think were known for living in the forest and huts and meditating? He and his followers. The Buddhist monks, right, monastics. And, and, uh, and meditating was probably considered a pretty high status, you know, pretty important thing to do, right? So here the Buddha is saying that the Brahmins originally were people who went off into the woods to meditate. So he's like redefining this, you know. He's, he's like... And then he goes on, and uh, in 23... However, some of those beings were not able to meditate. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so they settled around towns and villages and compiled books. One of the things that Brahmins are most known for is the, uh, is the people who gather together and memorize the uh, ancient uh, Vedic texts. That's one of the primary responsibilities of Brahmin priests is to save those texts. So they live in villages and towns. They gather texts. And so Buddha's making a distinction between those who do this. And then it goes, people saw them doing this and not meditating. And so they were called uh, 
now these do not meditate, uh, which is the meaning of uh, ajayaka. Ajayaka means also means uh, the reciters. It has two. It means reciters. So those who recite, but also there's a word play here because if you can look into it, jayaka jaya is like jhana, close enough. And so the Buddha is tr- saying this: this the people who recite are the people who can't meditate. So the Brahmins are the ones who recite. And the Buddha is saying, you guys, you know, you, you guys, you know, it's okay, you can recite, but you guys don't really know how to meditate. So he's just playing fun. They're just play, playing around with this. And, criti- and, and saying the Brahmins, you know, you guys. And so in a sense, the people who meditate are higher status than the ones who recite, who don't meditate. And guess who meditates? The next line. Which one? You want to read it? This. Yeah, yeah. And now it's higher. The ones who, met, who, ones who recite. The reciting Brahmins. Oh, I think uh, in the time of the Buddha, the Brahmins were saying, we're the highest caste. We're a high caste. We're pretty good. But, in, but back, back in the beginning of society, in this story here, it's like second class to be ones who couldn't meditate. That's what's being said. So you know, so the idea of you know, I, I think it's meaningful to think of this as parody and satire and humor, and the people are sitting around, they're laughing at this. Now, th- this is important to. Uh, I think it's useful to point that out, because uh, there's one thing to. There's there's maybe three different ways of looking at these texts, these early suttas. One is to try to understand what they might have meant, what what they might have meant when they were composed. The other is to understand how the Buddhist tradition down through the centuries understood the text. And the third is how we understand the text. And the understanding might that those might lead to three different kinds of understanding. And in fact, the, the tendency in Theravadan tradition down through the centuries is to take this as being literally true. And in fact, the story, that the myth that you guys read in the first half of the morning, appears one other place in the suttas, in, in, the, suttas, in, the, in the Theravadan literature, in a, a text called the Mahavastu. And it was written some five, six hundred years after the Buddha, maybe more. And um, it's kind of like a history book. And they tell this story, and, they remember the, and it stops where it talks about the people's choice, the first kind of ruler. Who, and then it describes the family lineage of king and son down through time. They, they give the names of all these different kings that existed, right up to the Buddha's father. In other words, the Buddha's father, who was a king of the Shakyans, his authority and his royal lineage goes right back to the beginning, which gives him a high status, right? Really, you know. And so, so this was used by the later tradition for their kind of political or social or status kind of reasons and played out. Is this how it really happened? 
Is this a true story? Is it a myth? How do we understand it? That very few of us are going to take it as being the tr you know, a true, true, true historical account. So many of us are more inclined to see it as myth. And if we see it as myth, how do we engage in the myth so it's meaningful for us? If we're practitioners, then uh, the reference point for us is not the search for truth in the abstract, but rather the reference point is what is it that helps and supports us to, to attain the goal of Buddhism, the goal being freedom. And one of the, if that's the goal, is to become free, then it's possible to engage texts like this from the point of view, in what way do I read this text, what way do I interpret this text to support me in becoming free? Rather than try to go back and see what is it, you know, these crazy people back there who, you know, they thought this was true. The Christian Bible is more believable than this. <laughs> or something, right? Last comment, and then we'll stop for lunch. Um, Where's the mic? The other mic? I'm really enjoying this um, because just hearing what you said about the third way of looking at it, uh, looking for freedom, which is what it was the perspective I I, I was looking at it um, with an opening of, okay, if there's anything that I need to understand of where this came from, I will add it there. Um, but it's really useful in the sense that as I was hearing, as, as I've been hearing the story throughout the day, um, I, I see a parallel of my life playing into the story and um, laugh, laughing at it. La laughing in a, in, in, a, uh, in a kind way, in a way of, oh, looking at, at the suffering, looking at the becoming of different identities, different growing, um, very indirectly seeing some of the Four Noble Truths and, and then lessening and minimizing in, in, in a way that helps me sustain it. Um, so it's, it's wonderful. Thank you. So thank you, uh, Bruni. I think that's a very good point of how, um, what's the role of stories in general, right? These particular ones, how do we relate to them? How do they support our practice? As well as what are the role of stories in our lives? And maybe I'll close with something that um, has been implicit in all our discussions this morning, but I'd like to make it a little bit more explicit. <coughs> And that is that in the story about who is best or what's the origin, what is the beginning, nowhere in here have we talked about a creator God. Right? This is something that um, kind of Buddhism today is known for, right? It's not a theistic religion. And so here um, instead are those consequences of actions and why those beings did actions, perhaps because actions they had done in the past. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there kind of more explicitly is this idea of there's causes and conditions and consequences of our actions. 
So with that, we'll break for lunch, and we'll come back at 1.15, if that works. Thank you very much. So if I can just take a second at the end, sort of, sort of like running the credits at the end of the movie, <laughs> um, just to welcome you to the Sati Center, uh, which is an organization that exists for the purpose of providing uh, opportunities for study as an adjunct and supplement to practice. Um, the Sati Center offers programs like this on an occasional basis, generally monthly or so, and some additional uh, program material and, and learning opportunities that can be tracked down on the website sati.org. So I, I would uh, point you in that direction if you have an interest. And also to remind you that the Sati Center operates in the economy of Donna, uh, which most of you are familiar with. And the Donna baskets, the Donna basket, the Donna slot is to the right of the front door as you go out. And uh, uh, this is a Sati Center operation and not an IMC operation. I think there's a sign there that uh, points to that for those of you who uh, might be offering checks. And as, uh, as we go through lunch and afterwards, if you have questions about what's going on or anything, you can contact me. My name is Tony. <laughs>